Welcome to Serving Victims Through the System, a podcast dedicated to system-based advocacy topics hosted by Isla White County Victim Witness Services in Isla White, Virginia. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this month's episode. So as I was writing our latest blog piece on the increased trend of Asian hate crimes, I came across some information on the Hell's Canyon massacre. It wasn't something I'd ever heard of before, despite considering myself pretty knowledgeable on U.S. history. Of course, I knew about the Chinese Exclusion Act and information about opiate laws in the U.S. during the time of Asian migration, but the Hell's Canyon massacre was entirely new information to me. After doing some more research into the incident, I decided doing a spotlight on this particular case would shed some more additional background onto the plight of Asian Americans in the U.S. and why it's so important that we stop to honor AAPI victims of hate during this month. So as a note, May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Awareness Month. Um, I go into a bit of detail in our blog post about what AAPI means and some history of AAPI relations in the U.S. So I've linked it in the episode description for you. If you haven't already checked it out, I encourage you to do so. But today, May 28th, is actually the anniversary of the Hell's Canyon Massacre. So I wanted to make sure that this episode was available for you guys to listen to starting today. So I know it's the end of AAPI. API month, but the fact that this crime happened towards the end of the month doesn't necessarily make a difference because we should always be considering our Asian American and Pacific Islander um, victims and survivors of crime. Like we should always be considering how their identity might influence victimization, things like that. But I did think it was a special time to really kind of highlight this, especially when I was writing this article last week and I was writing the script for this podcast and I realized with the dates. And so I figured that actually having it premiere today would be a great thing. Anyways, as I was doing research for the blog, I came across the Hell's Canyon Massacre, and I couldn't believe how atrocious the entire thing was. I felt it was important to spend some time on this particular event to really highlight how historical events can shape the future. So let's dive in. The gold rush of California occurred from 1848 to the mid-1850s after gold was found in the Sacramento Valley by James Marshall while he was working to build a water-powered sawmill for John Sutter. The discovery of this gold led to thousands of Americans and migrants to flock toward San Francisco and other parts of California in the hopes of discovering gold. China, which had operated under an isolationist governmental philosophy throughout the Ming and Qing dynasties, experienced a large amount of violence in the early 1840s during the First Opium War. China no longer wanted Indian-grown opium passing through its borders and trade posts, but Britain, in all its colonial glory, very much wanted to continue using China as a trade post for opium. From 1839 to 1842, China and Britain engaged in what's known as the First Opium War, with the end result requiring China to pay a hefty fine to the British and cede control of Hong Kong. Of course, once the gold rush occurred, Chinese citizens who had grown weary of the violence in China and sensed another impending war with Britain and France took advantage of the gold rush in 1849 and migrated to the U.S. in droves. China ultimately engaged in a second opium war with Britain and France from 1856 to 1860, again losing the war and legalizing opium importation as a result. With so many Chinese migrants making their way to the U.S., many settled in California which didn't gain official statehood until 1850, well after the gold rush got underway, but it had become a U.S. territory a few days after James Marshall found gold in the mountains. Anyways, Chinese migrants, many of whom faced a variety of barriers simply due to extreme American xenophobia, typically engaged in one of two career paths, mining for gold or building the railroads. 
Both were grueling conditions and experiences. Chinese men worked for very little pay and in desolate conditions. However, this also meant that Chinese migrants didn't only end up in California. Many traveled through Oregon, Idaho, Washington State, and even over to Utah or Nevada. It's in the mining community that we find the Hell's Canyon Massacre. A little bit about Hell's Canyon. Managed by the Wallowa Whitman National Forest, Hell's Canyon is a recreational area that spans over a thousand miles in Oregon and Idaho. The Snake River runs through the canyon, which the forest proudly boasts is the deepest river gorge in all of North America, like even deeper than parts of the Grand Canyon. It's really difficult terrain to get through, so experienced hikers and campers are the ones who should visit here. If you're less outdoor inclined, like me, you'll probably want to schedule a tour with a park ranger that can guide you. Anyways, let's fast forward to 1887. Even though the gold rush hit its peak in 1852, there were still some mining companies that were holding out for luck in other locations throughout the West Coast and the Rockies. One of these was the Sam Yup Company, known as one of the six companies that focused on Chinese migrant support during the gold rush and beyond. You can read some more interesting stuff about the Sam Yup Company, the six companies, and the Tongs on Found SF, the digital archive of Shaping San Francisco, which is basically the San Francisco version of Wikipedia, but managed through a fact-checking entity. The Sam Yup Company had commissioned over 30 Chinese men to go mining for flower gold in the deep creek of Hell's Canyon. The men set up camp in a pretty desolate part of the canyon where it could only be accessible by boat and after a difficult trek through the canyons and the cliffs. Of course, they wanted to find gold, but they felt far enough away from the white miners below that they could escape any violence they might incur. So the gold that they were checking for was flower gold. And the best way that I can describe flower gold is basically it's gold that kind of is found on the top of a river, which is why like you'd see people standing in the river with flower sifters or, you know, sifting objects to catch the gold as they're putting the sifter in the water. So it was called flower gold because you, you pretty much used a flower sifter to try and get the, the gold. Anyways, so unfortunately, the white miners hate wasn't overcome by the difficult location. A gang of seven horse thieves traveled up the canyon to the Chinese miners campsite on May 27th and May 28th. These horse thieves then shot each of the men. And when one man initially survived and tried to escape, they bludgeoned him to death. However, other than simply murdering the men and leaving the scene, the horse thieves mutilated their bodies, threw them in the creek, stole their gold, and burned their campsite. It wasn't until two weeks later that the Chinese miners' bodies washed up on the shores in Lewiston, Idaho, where the miners were actually from. Response to the crime was minimal by the Lewiston authorities. Despite other Chinese miners finding the initial campsite and evidence of the bloodshed, it wasn't until the Sam Yup Company hired a local judge to look into the incident. And by judge, I mean justice of the peace because it was the West, so some of the court systems operated a little bit differently than they did in the East Coast where the cities were a little bit more established and a little bit more formal. And because a lot of these places weren't official states or they didn't have like official U.S. government officials, things like that, their governments of these small towns out in the middle of nowhere in the West um, operated a little bit differently. So by judge, it's really justice of the peace or somebody who had been authorized to have the ability to make judgment calls, to charge people with crimes, um, things like that. So uh, this individual who was kind of a mix of both magistrate and investigator and judge conducted an investigation of his own and came to the conclusion that horse thieves committed the murder, but he didn't know who. About a year later in 1888, one of the horse thieves actually confessed to the crime 
implicating six others. And of the seven total individuals who committed the crime, one of whom was only 15 at the time of the murders. And from the research that I've been able to find, it sounds like the 15-year-old was actually the one who, who confessed. He kind of mentioned that he was there and he like traveled on horseback and he saw everybody else do the murdering, but he himself didn't participate. So three of the seven total men that were indicted actually fled the area and were never seen or heard from again, which sounds kind of normal for the Wild West, right? <laughs> but the others were tried. And so the man who confessed agreed to testify against the others in a deal, but the jurors decided not to find any of the men guilty because they didn't know the victims or care because they weren't white, according to information from the No Place Project. The case was wrapped up in September of 1888. Now, here's where things get interesting. Prior to the 1990s, no one knew anything about the massacre except for maybe some locals that had kept the story alive through an oral tradition. There weren't any records or documents detailing the case or the trial. It wasn't until 1995 that a clerk for Wallowa County found the documents in the back of a safe in the courthouse. And so I think the way that she ended up finding them was because they were cleaning out their safes and, and all their back documents. And I think they were doing a big purge and they might have even been doing like a move from building to building, especially because I believe at the time the courthouse that they were in was like one of the original buildings and might have needed some work done. So they were migrating everything over to a temporary storage place. And so this clerk was going through all the documents to purge things that weren't necessary or file things away. So that way they didn't get destroyed and they could bring them back once the work was finished. But anyway, so a clerk finds these documents kind of hidden in the back of a safe in the courthouse. And so one of the judges in the 90s for the county actually remarked that the fact the files weren't just lost or misplaced, but instead specifically locked away in a safe indicated that the county government wanted to keep them hidden as reported in a New York Times article by the Associated Press in 1995. The article goes on to explain some more information about the case, including a detail that the massacre spread across two days because additional miners came sailing down the creek and the gang of thieves decided to shoot them too. They then went to a second camp a little further down and killed an additional 10 men. So between the two days, they murdered 30 plus Chinese miners in two different locations. In fact, the thieves actually took about $50,000 worth of gold from the Chinese miners when they killed them. When I talked about this case with Leah, my supervisor, after coming across it and kind of doing a little bit more of a deep dive into it, she went and found an inflation calculator and plugged the numbers in for a few different dates because the New York Times article from 1995 wasn't clear as to whether the $50,000 was what the gold was worth in 1995 or in the late 1880s. Unfortunately, the inflation calculator went back only to 1913. So if we're operating cautiously under the assumption that the gold was worth at least $50,000 in 1913, in 1995, that would have been roughly $770,000. So like $770,000. So let me say that again, seven, seven, zero, comma, zero, zero, zero. So six numbers in 2021, it'd be roughly 1.35 million split between 34 men after the Sam Yup company took out their portion, that wouldn't have been a bad find for the miners at all. The No Place Project reports that the killers who testified claimed they were motivated by the gold the Chinese miners had found, but there's never been any evidence of the gold being used or stored anywhere not even from the three men who fled. And if they had really only been about the gold, they could have robbed the men without killing them, or they could have stolen the gold at the campsite and fled instead of waiting for 24 hours to kill more Chinese miners. 
While you might argue that the men who fled would have used the gold they took to live and thrive in other areas of the West under fake names, there weren't any reports recovered from neighboring counties where men quote-unquote struck gold or built estates or even established businesses to corroborate or locate avenues where the gold would have been used. So even if the men took the gold, no gold was found when any of them were arrested either, and the whistleblower didn't have any gold to give up or lead the officials to. Where the money and gold went is a mystery... But what isn't is that seven men endured a grueling journey where they could have easily decided, nah, not today, and instead turned back without murdering men who were just trying to make a decent living. They still continued through this journey just to murder not only 10 men, but they waited around for more men and then traveled to another campsite a little bit further up to kill more men. The paragraph in the No Place Project's write-up of the massacre discussing the thieves' motivation for their crime plods that the miners were targeted just for being Chinese, and it certainly does appear that way. Especially when we consider that the only documents providing proof of the incident were locked away in a safe for over a century. Today, you can access the site of the massacre through guided tours with park rangers or local guide groups. One of the reporters from the Oregonian, the newspaper that actually broke the original story about finding the lost records back in the 1990s, decided to turn his career towards researching the case and writing a book about the massacre. The book was published in 2009, and it's written by Gregory Noakes, called Massacred for Gold. I've linked it in the description for you. Anyways, it wasn't until 2012 when a granite memorial inscribed with names of 10 of the victims was erected at the site of the massacre. Those 10 were the only ones able to be identified when their bodies washed up in Lewiston. And I wasn't able to find any evidence or any information regarding why it was just those 10 names. I'm unsure if some of the bodies were like didn't all officially ever wash up on shore. I don't know if maybe the bodies were mutilated beyond identification when they washed up. I, none of that has been clear. I haven't really been able to find anything on that in particular, but I have been able to find that there are 10 names on this granite memorial, and uh, this granite slab is located at the site of the massacre at Hell's Canyon. So the Hell's Canyon massacre reminds us just how important it is to consider the effects of xenophobia and racism on how we provide services. For decades in the U.S., the criminal justice system pushed aside survivors and victims of color simply because they deemed them less than perfect victims. However, as advocates, we can work to ensure that all survivors and victims receive quality care. Our charge isn't to judge or assume anything about the victims we meet and work with, but instead to ensure that the other players in the criminal justice system treat them with respect and dignity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Serving Victims Through the System. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, make sure to send us a message and share this episode on social media while you wait for our next one.